Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are the source of all we have. Everything, our existence, everything is a blessing from your hand every day. Every breath, every heartbeat, every brainwave, every meal. Lord, the sunshine, the, the beauty all around us, it's all because you're so good and you're wise and you love us. Lord, we want to take to heart the exhortation we were just singing to each other, speak, O church, and until God is glorified and the earth is filled with his glory. Lord, that's, that's what we're called to, but our lives, Lord, can be filled with so many other things but pursuing your glory. The cares of the day can so dominate that we don't think much about eternity at all. We don't think much about you at all. Lord, I know it's so easy for me to wake up and look at all the things I have to do that day and dive in without much thought of you and seeking to glorify you in the midst of all of those things. So, Lord, as we, again, hear from you through your word in the book of Proverbs, help us to learn all you have for us, even if it hurts and is challenging and convicting. Lord, I pray that in the midst of that, though, it be ultimately encouraging knowing that when we walk with you and follow in your ways, it leads to life. And so we pray that you'd use your word, as you so faithfully do, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Vanishing American Adult, subtitle Our Coming of Age Crisis and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. Not a surprising title coming from a man who grew up working in the cornfields of Nebraska from his earliest days. But listen to what Ben Sass says in this book the vanishing in American adult. I believe our entire nation is in the midst of a collective coming of age crisis without parallel in our history. We are living in an America of perpetual adolescence. Our kids simply don't know what an adult is anymore or how to become one. Many don't even see a reason to try Perhaps more problematic, the older generations have forgotten that we need to plan to teach them. It's our fault more than theirs. He also says, there is almost nothing more important we can do for our young than convince them that production is more satisfying than consumption. Production is more satisfying than consumption. I think that's so true. Now, Ben Sass is a committed Christian, uh, a devoted Christian, and his worldview about these things comes from his Christian worldview, his theology, his understanding of the Bible that drives his understanding of the purpose of our lives. And the purpose of our lives, according to the scriptures, is not to live for the weekend. 
It's not to live for ease and comfort and convenience. The Christian worldview knows that we were made to be fruitful and multiply and rule over and subdue the earth and bring our personhood, especially our collective personhood, to bear on this world and make a difference for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. He knows that the purpose of working six, five, six days a week is not to veg, but to bear fruit, not to become one, not to become a vegetable for that matter. Uh, we are created to create. We're created to produce. And we learned this morning from this passage in Proverbs some powerful truths about being productive. Now, there's a challenge in this passage, and even as I'm about to read through it, I, I want to make sure that we don't fall into opposite errors. Satan is brilliant. He can't create anything. All he can get us to do is distort and pervert what God has created. And so we need to be careful that we have a sophisticated understanding, a deep understanding of the things of God, especially in the book of Proverbs, because it will say things that if you don't understand it in the sophisticated complexity of real life, you'll be led astray and you'll think God's lying to you. It says things like, raise up a child in, in the way he should go and then from the end he won't depart from it. And I know plenty of parents who have done a wonderful job raising their children in the way they should go and they depart from it. And so these are ways things generally go. And God wants us to understand these things in the midst of the reality of daily life. And we can so easily go to extremes in this. And I'll talk about that in a bit. But let's read our, our proverb this morning. We're only going to read the first 19 verses. Uh, but listen to these words from the Lord. It is the antidote to apathy. It is the antidote to a culture in which we live here, in this area of the world especially, a culture of convenience and consumerism and ease and thinking everything is about getting to the end of diligence. But this proverb teaches us the antidote to apathy. Proverbs 6, 1 through 19. Here we go. My son... If you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. Now, I think what's happening here is we've got three people involved. You, your neighbor, and someone you don't know. And your neighbor comes to you and says, Doug, would you please co-sign a loan for this person you don't know? I'm doing business with them. They don't have the credit to get this loan, but you do, so will you co-sign for them? I know you don't know them, but take my word for it. This will be a good deal, I promise. And so there are three people, you, your neighbor, and this person you don't know, this other person. And your neighbor's asking you to put your house on the line, if it were, if you will. So, uh, yeah, would you do this? Would you co-sign this loan? If you've given up your security for your neighbor, you've given your pledge for a stranger. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, you made a commitment that you realize now was foolish. Caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. Do you hear the urgency? Do you hear the seriousness of this? 
for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give, no, give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Do you hear the urgency in this, the seriousness in this? This isn't, just, this isn't just, ah, yeah, that might have not been too smart. No, it's saying do whatever you need to to get yourself out of the trap you've gotten yourself into. Remember as a kid watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins. Anybody remember that show? Was that out? Yes. So it wasn't just an East Coast thing. Sometimes I realized, oh, that was just on the East Coast. I thought everyone knew this, but that's good. Yeah, that is a really tough show for little kids to watch. It's, oh, kids watching animals. Yeah, watching animals kill each other and getting ensnared in these traps with these predators waiting in the bushes. That's the imagery here. It's really serious. It's really urgent. Get yourself out of the foolish commitment you've made. Do whatever it takes. Don't even let yourself sleep until you do it. Don't be apathetic about getting yourself out of however you must this foolish commitment you've made. It's really serious. And, and what we see here is the foolish use of resources that put us in a situation that we can't get out of unless we do something extreme to do it. And he's saying, do it. Do what it takes. Go to your neighbor. Don't try to save face and act like you got it figured out when you realize you've done something really foolish with your money. And so this first point we see here is that we are to honor God wisely with our money, with our resources. And, and th there are three things I want us to, to see are in this. It's all about honoring God, but it's about honoring God with your money, honoring God with your time, and honoring God with your community. Time, money, time, and community are the focus here, as we'll see. And this first one is money. Honor God with your money, with your resources. Be wise. Don't gamble. Don't spend your resources in a way that extend you beyond your limits. And we have a massive problem with this in our culture. Credit card debt is just gut-wrenchingly holding people paralyzed. Buying things you just don't have the money for. Putting money toward things you actually don't even have. And we've got a lot of foolishness when it comes to money. And by the way, we've got a lot of really wise people when it comes to money in this church. I go for advice to people in this church quite a bit. And, and so I'm so thankful for the wisdom in this church. And if you need wisdom in traps you've gotten yourselves in financially, would you contact the church office and, and we will connect you with people who can walk you through and shepherd you through the wise use of finances. But this idea of honoring God with your resources needs to be qualified, though, doesn't it? Because this is not a call to be stingy. That's what it could sound like. We're not exactly sure what's motivating this unwise use of money of this son. It may actually be a kind of generosity, but a stupid generosity. Do you know there's such a thing? You can be stupidly generous. And, and that's what this is warning. Against. It may be generosity. But we can be very unwise in our generosity. That's why the Bible says that we need to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And so we, we need a kind of sanctified shrewdness, wisdom, in the midst of generosity. 
We can be stupidly generous. It may be greed that's driving this. Ah, oh, this sounds like a good deal. And even though I may not be able to back it up, boy, this, this seems like it's too good to be true. And, and we get taken advantage of. Uh, and so we've got to honor God with our money. And this doesn't mean we're not generous. It, there's danger in this passage because it may seem like we're, we're being called to just hold on to everything and hoard everything. And that's not what it's saying at all. The Bible says this in Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. That's what we're called to. That sort of generosity, care for the poor. Proverbs 21 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. First Timothy says that we're not to be haughty, setting our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's why we're able to do good and be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for, our, uh, for themselves, not uh, for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And I hope you've seen in Proverbs, God's ways, which are the ways of wisdom, lead to life. This passage is filled with how we shouldn't be. But in the midst of it, don't miss how we should be and what that leads to. Rob's sermon last, night, last week was so helpful, wasn't it? Thank you, Rob. Rob, are you over in your normal spot over there? Where is he? Oh, hey, whoa, you're way in back, Rob. Don't fall asleep back there, Rob. Yeah, I know you won't. It was so helpful because there were all these prohibitions, but he helped us to see right in his title, Flee Sexual Folly and Feast on Better Love. I hope in the midst of all these prohibitions and exhortations to not be this way, you don't miss the life that comes with being in God's ways and in relationship with him. But we need to be wise in this. That's what it's calling us to. A wisdom with our resources. We need to not be so naive about our generosity that we don't give wisely. So would you pray for the leaders of this church, especially the ones who are focusing on our finances, Philip Massey and the Finance Committee and Jim Clark, who we entrust with our resources, and I'm so grateful for how wise and shrewd and generous they are all at the same time and experienced in these things. Doesn't mean at times we won't be taken advantage of, but it won't because of our, be because of our naivete. It'll be because of our open-handedness. I'm especially concerned about young Christians here. There's this, this idea, for instance, among so many young Christians that socialism is Christian. That, that this sort of open-handed, just give all the money to the government so, because they know how to spend it wisely. Just go to the DMV and see how true that is. Uh, the church should be the ones that are generously giving. That's, that's why I don't like taxes because I want us to keep as much of our money as we can because I think we spend it way more wisely than the government. And so there's this idea that to, to be Christian is to just be open-handed no matter what. No, there are really stupid ways to give. There, there's a book came out a few years ago called When Helping Hurts. And it, it's this, this idea that we can be so eager to help, but help in ways that aren't helpful. Like, 
oh, those kids don't have shoes, so let's just bring hundreds of shoes that we don't want anymore down to this village in Central America, and we put the shoemaker out of business and mess up the economy. Not thinking what's, what's actually going to be helpful, what's a, the best way to do this. You know, sometimes our experience is more of a priority than helping indigenous ministers in places. Short-term missions is great, but, but sometimes our resources are far better spent fueling the people who are there already. Even though your Instagram feed won't have these impressive pictures. We, we've got to spend wisely, and I'm so grateful for those in our church who help us to do this. So this is not a call to be stingy. It's a call to be wisely generous. It's a call to be strategic about our giving. It's a call to give generously but wisely. And there's no wiser way to give than to give to treasures in heaven. Storing up treasures there rather than here. Making wise decisions about what not to spend money on so we can spend it on things that have far greater value than what we otherwise would have spent it on. There's nothing wrong with earthly pleasures. There's nothing wrong with, with having things of quality, which at times can actually be a wiser investment than having cheap things. Like the dollar store often isn't a good investment. Uh, and and so, so we've got to be wise about these things. I, I have a friend, one of the most generous men I've ever known. His name, his name, was Dick, his name is Dick Lauber. And, and Dick was a very successful businessman. And I said to him one time, and, and he gave, I, I knew a little about what he gave, but I know he gave way more than even what I realized, which was amazing. I run into people all the time and said, oh yeah, we're here because uh, Dick and Marilyn Lauber enabled us to be here financially. And oh, I, I would say, wow, your, your missionaries got this new car. Yeah, the Lauber's got it. it. It's amazing how often they would do this. And I said to him one time, Dick, what's one of the most important lessons you've ever learned? And he said, how to say no. It was surprising to me. How to say no, because as you could imagine, he was asked often to give. And he realized everything wasn't what he was going to be giving to because he wanted to give strategically and intentionally and in the ways God called him to give. And so we need to be wise with our money, with our resources, storing up treasures in heaven. And then the second thing we're called to be wise with is our time. Our, our time. So again, this is not a call to be overworked, uh, uh, but what is it a call to? L listen to what it says next. Go to the ant, O sluggard. <laughs> Verse 6. Consider the way his ways, her ways, and be wise. This is not your aunt, like Mary dear uncle. This, this is an ant, right? To be wise without having any chief officer ruler so no one's telling him what to do what does he do she she what does she do she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest oh how long will you lie there O oh sluggard when will you arise from your sleep a little sleep a little slumber a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man now again, we need to be careful. This is not a call to have no place for rest. After all, God commands Sabbath rest. God commands feasts and festivals. And there are some here that this could be a dangerous message to, to preach it if we're not careful. Because some of you need to rest more and work less. But plenty of us need to work more 
and rest less. Some of us need to have a better theology of play and recreation and enjoyment of rest and good naps and, and playfulness. But others of us need to hear this message as well. Others of us have given into a mentality that lacks diligence. This is not a call to be workaholics. It is a call to be diligent, though, restfully diligent, I would say. Now, after all, Jesus says, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so Jesus says, don't be anxious, don't worry. But there's a difference between worry and diligence. We can be restfully diligent. We can be hardworking, but in a way that doesn't think everything is on our shoulders. Restfully diligent is what we're called to be. And it's so important to realize that work is a gift before the fall. The fall brings relentless difficulty, thorns and thistles and sweat of the brow into our work, and the curse has made life relentlessly difficult, but work is still a gift to be stewarded for God's glory and the good of others, a wonderful gift. And this requires that we as Christians be countercultural here. It is just the American way to complain about work. Work in general, complain about your boss, complain about all sorts of things related to your work. Work is a gift from God, and it's got a difficulty that's always involved with it, but it's a wonderful gift from God, and it's able to be done to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Everything done then to the glory of God, and it's not done to the glory of God if you think you're God and are the one who has to do all the work even the ultimate work. No, God does the work. God provides. He will take care of you. But that is not an excuse to apathetic passivity. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, not as for men, Colossians 3 says, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward, you're serving Christ the Lord. Listen to how similar Ephesians is to our passage here. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Again, the sense of urgency. I love reading Puritan literature, and sometimes a title of a Puritan book or or essay can be really long in itself, but the best title I've ever heard in Puritan literature is about procrastination by Jonathan Edwards. Here's the title of his article on this. Procrastination, colon, or the sin and folly of presuming upon future time. The sin and folly of presuming on future time. Why do you assume you will have tomorrow? That's what James is saying to rich and haughty people when he says, oh, come you who say today or tomorrow will go to this city and make a profit. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life but a mist that's here today and tomorrow it vanishes? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord's, Lord wills, we will do this and that. Instead, you boast and all such boasting is evil. 
presuming upon future time, presuming upon the time to do all the most important things, whether it's with your family or your resources like the previous passage, or with any gift God's given you, we need to have a sense of urgency about it. Not that turns us into people who never rest, but people who, even in our rest, are resting so that we can work more efficiently. And it says, if you don't do this normatively, you'll end up in poverty. You'll end up in poverty. And that's why the Bible says, if, if someone in your church won't work, refuses to work, they shouldn't eat. Well, I thought we were supposed to be generous, not for people who won't take responsibility for themselves or their responsibilities that God's given them. It's saying laziness usually leads to poverty, but not always, because we all know lazy people who are rich, don't we? And we all know poor people who are diligent. So this isn't always the case. It's not just irresponsibility that it necessarily leads to poverty, but, but that is the direction laziness takes us. And, and I actually think the understanding of the way poverty comes upon us is it's like beggars who are prevalent and always there asking for more. You can't get rid of them. It's consistent. You know, I remember I was in another country one time and I didn't know what the coins in my pocket were worth. And this, this little boy came up to me asking for money. And I said, I'm just going to give him everything I have in my pocket. And I gave him this handful of change. And he looked at it, and apparently it wasn't much. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought I gave a lot to him, but apparently, I, I guess it was a bunch of pennies. You know what he did? He hauled back and threw it in my face <laughs> and started cussing me out in his language. I'm, I didn't know what he was saying. I kind of wished I did. But apparently, that kid didn't get the memo that beggars can't be choosers. Um, yeah, it's amazing how offended he was at how little I gave him. I thought he'd be thankful for anything, but apparently not. But we, we can have this constant neediness around us that will never go away if we don't work. If we don't work hard, if we're not diligent in these things. And so we are to honor God with our money, honor God with our time, to be diligent, to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, today's a gift from your hand. How do you want to use me to be fruitful and to multiply the gifts you've given me? How do you want to use me to bless others and glorify you wisely with my resources? The last thing we're to honor God with is our community. And that may not be obvious right away, but we're to honor God with our resources wisely wisely generous. We're to honor God with our time like the ant that works hard. I love how the Bible will use examples from nature that we're intended to learn from. Do you know when God invented the ant, he had this idea in mind. I'm going to make a creature that, that's so little and seemingly insignificant, but these humans made in my image can learn a lot from. That's how hard they work. They're, they're anticipating their future need and they're working hard. Do you ever see an ant just dragging a giant piece of bread? It's just amazing what we can learn from these little seemingly insignificant creatures. But we're, we're to follow their example, not be like other animals, like slugs, like sloths. I wonder, 
if sloths are named sloths because sloth came first or if we got the word sloth from sloths. I didn't look that up, but somebody do that for me later, not now on your phone. Figure that out for me later. But we're not to be like slugs and sloths, but like ants and their diligence. Who not it amazing how ants, especially collectively, can make such a difference. They can make ant hills that you trip over and, and all sorts of underground things. It's amazing how they just keep coming back. They're relentless. We have a lot to learn from them. And, and finally, honor God with your community. Listen to this. It's got two parts, but it's really, I think, focusing on community, society, relationships, and stewarding them well to the glory of God. Listen to, again, strong language, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, with Perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he'll be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. I think this is God's call for us to steward our relationships, to steward our community, to steward our role in society in ways that honor him and edifies others. Why do I say that? Well, because twice we see this result of, one, the worthless person being sowing discord, planting the seeds of division, of divisiveness. And again, the things God hates are summarized again in verse 19 as being one who sows discord. Doesn't bring unity and momentum and, and beauty and fruitfulness to relationships and community, but division and fruitlessness and hatred so not sowing discord, but rather edifying and unifying with the influence we have in our relationships, in our community, and in our society. The first is the scoundrel in verses 12 through 15, called worthless. Listen to all these, these descriptions. Worthless, wicked, crooked, perverted heart. Th this guy is trouble. He's a scoundrel. And what he's doing is working to undermine the fabric of society, working to undermine personal relationships for his own benefit. He's corrupting even societal judicial systems and government authority at the end of this. And we've got plenty of this. We have, I think, an increasing uh, evangelistic zeal about disruption and anarchy and, and, and blowing up the system, and we've got an increasing timidity about righteousness and goodness. And the scoundrel's undermining these things for his own purposes. He's actually ultimately attempting to undermine the, the, the entire judicial system of the society, as we see at the end of our section today. So you've got this wicked man who uses his body in ways that demonstrate his wicked heart. So we've got all these images of the use of the body for wicked heart expression. The mouth, the eyes, the feet, the finger, the hands, the tongue, the mouth. Show this evil divisive heart. And, and I want to take this to heart. 
Character is a matter of expression in bodies. And, and we're not sure exactly what all these symbols mean at the beginning, guys, with your fingers and the wink of an eye. But what's clearly going on, I don't think it's a curse. It may have been some sort of curse you're calling down at someone, but I think it's mostly using your body, expressing a divisive heart in a way that undermines trust, that undermines unity. You know, a glance across the room of disdain for the person speaking. Uh, just a little look, a, li- a little a little way of your body language. You know, my son, Sam, went to a really amazing week-long basketball camp last year with, with Uni Oaks. And they went to this camp, and I was so impressed with how they ran this basketball camp. Do you know they spent an entire day at this camp? An entire day focusing on body language as a player. The way you're, you're affecting a team just by pouting on the bench, just by carrying yourself in a way like you assume you're going to lose, just a disdain, a, a, a judgmental look at a player who made a mistake. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything, but you did. He had a profound influence, and we've got to think about the way our bodies, our faces, are, are, are often communicating in ways we're not even aware when, it's, when we're gathered, and, and we need to be so aware of the ways we use our bodies. You think of that great hymn, take my life and let it be. It says, take my hands, take my feet, t- take my mouth, use my body in ways that are glorifying to you. We can also use our body in ways that are dishonoring to God and divisive and tear others down. In the corporate worship, what are our bodies communicating? Apathy, love, engagement, uh, passive resistance, enthusiastic embrace. I mean, I've got to watch my body. I'm not good. My, Donna's taught me through the years to watch my body language and my facial expressions. I tend to wear my emotions outwardly, and that's not always helpful. It's not always wise. Sometimes it's sinful. Sometimes a poker face is a really good thing to be able to have. Not in a way that isn't being honest and upfront, but but not always expressing what you may be feeling. And the result of all of this in verse 15 is the brokenness of that individual man. And and then the second half of this this stewarding, this honoring God with, with relationships and community is talking about things God hates. What in the world? Things God hates. It says he hates six things, yea, seven. That's just a rhetorical device to get your attention in Hebrew. This isn't an exhaustive list of the things God hates. They're not even in some order of priority. It's just a very uh, Hebrew and poetic and attention-getting way to talk. And, and here are the, some of the things he hates. Crooked speech. All this communication, he, he hates things, and he says they're an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plants, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. There it is again. So, so these, these community-undermining ways are things God hates, God has an emotional life. The first five things are related to body parts and the role the body contributes in stirring up dissension. 
but it's about ultimately an arrogant spirit exalting itself over others, but ultimately over God. Haughtiness before God is a refusal to reckon with your own weakness and frailty and creatureliness. And to lie is to distort reality for one's own purposes. We've said that wisdom is conforming yourself to reality. Lying is, is a way of demanding reality conformed to the way you want it to be. Hearts that devise wicked schemes, it doesn't just happen. It's not a crime of passion. You think about it, you strategize for it. You've been given over to it, and that can happen. We can come and become amazingly ingenious with the initiative and the strategy we take in sin we're pursuing. Ways to keep it a secret. Ways to keep it going. Feet that rush to do evil. There's an enthusiasm for it. And we're told God hates it. Shouldn't we find a better word than hate? No. This Hebrew word is well translated hate. There are even stronger words like abomination, like abhorrence. That's how God feels towards, towards sin and evil. Psalm 5, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers, Psalm 5 says. You destroy those who speak lies. God, Psalm 27 says God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. God hates sin and evil. Don't you? I hope you do. And if you do, a sinner... How much more should a holy God hate sin and evil? That's why we're told in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. James says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When the trajectory of your life is in opposition to God, God opposes you. Can you imagine more terrifying thought? That God is opposed to you because of a haughty heart. Oh, that, that makes me shudder at the haughtiness so often in my own heart. But God hates sin and evil. I hope you love that he does. I hope you worship him because of godly hatred. Of course he opposes the proud, but he loves the proud as well. That's the great news. And godly people should oppose the proud as well. Psalm 97, you who love the Lord hate evil. Romans 12, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, we see ourselves, if we're God's people, as the ones who are in relationship with God, who are no longer living in darkness and pursuing wickedness, but we are pursuing righteousness. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness now. But our lives can be such a battle. And when they are a battle to pursue righteousness rather than the wickedness to which we were one day, one, at one time a slave, it requires not just more motivation you conjure up, but dependence on God's provision. God hates sin and evil. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Every one of us had God in opposition to us. Every one of us. I hope you can relate to everything in this passage. The tendency to laziness and the easy way out. The tendency to, to be, be lacking wisdom in the way we invest our resources. I hope you can relate to even these, these community undermining attitudes and ways of using even your body. 
And I hope you realize that God is opposed to those things, but he's for us, just like what we were saying. If God is for us, who can be against us? And how is he for us? He's for us in Christ. He is for us in sending his son because he loved us, not so he could, but because he loved us, he sent his son and is for us as much as he can be. And in Jesus, we turn from our selfish, lazy, naive, stupid wickedness and we trust Jesus' righteousness and perfect sacrifice. Because we don't just fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin aren't only death. That's not the end of the story. Romans 6, 23 goes on. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This gift of grace, that's what we experience. And so we can then go about investing our lives with our resources, our time, and our relationships in a way that's honoring to him and life-giving to us and a blessing to others. That's the only way to live. God's ways, resting in Christ and his finished work for us. And, and now as we move to the Lord's Supper, this is exactly what we celebrate. The sin that hopefully we could relate to described in this wicked man, this lazy man, in this foolish man is forgiven in Christ. And we start from a place of pursuing wise investment and diligent pursuit of redeeming the time and making the most of our contribution to, to a unified community grounded in the finished work of Christ. And that's what we celebrate now in the Lord's Supper. If you would take out the elements that you got, if not, the ushers can bring them to you. Um, they're, they're at the tables. Just raise your hand if you need some elements at home. Hope you've prepared them. If not, you can scurry and do that now as I've had to do when I've been online. Um, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper. And then Paul refers back to that. I forgot mine. It's in that pile. You can take the wafer out, get that ready. We're not going to rush. I'm going to do our best with this. Paul refers back to Jesus instituting the, the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper. And he refers back to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, with this beautiful simplicity in washing his disciples' feet and then offering those, these most basic elements of daily sustenance, points us to... Jesus' sustenance for us. Jesus' body and blood in our place and for us. And as you can see, this is for those who've trusted Jesus. If you've never trusted Jesus, please, this morning, turn from your sin and trust him in saving faith. And pray with someone before you leave. Talk with someone before you leave. But if that isn't something you've done, this, this isn't for you. This is one of the very few times we, we don't say you're not welcome. Not because we don't love you and want you to be 
part of this body here at Grace in this fellowship. But this is one of those times where God says, this is for those who've gotten to the end of themselves and ended up at the feet of Jesus. And so this is for believers. And if you're not walking with God, if you're in rebellion against him or not in fellowship, even at a local church with, with God's people, I, I would encourage you to, to refrain from this and make things right with God and with God's people and then come to the Lord's Supper after. I'll never forget a couple in our church were in a major doozy of an argument on their way to the Lord's Supper one night and they resolved it with a, just a few minutes to go in the service out in the car and they came in after the service and asked an elder to give them the Lord's Supper. It was a beautiful example of taking the seriousness of this to heart. And so this is for believers, this is for, for God's people. Uh, and let's all now take the wafer together representing Jesus' body given for us. And now together taking the cup, remembering Jesus' blood spilled for us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that as your body, we are able to remember the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, um, shed for us and given for us. Lord, we're grateful for the amazing love you have for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we still were partakers in the sins Proverbs 6 just laid out for us so strongly, we know in Christ it's all forgiven. And we're grateful for that and pray that we would walk in the freedom and the joy and the purpose that brings to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.